This is the Bay Mob Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we hear the voices of those who stood against empire and paid for it with their lives. We are reminded that Revelation is not a book of futuristic code, but an encouragement to those trying to remain faithful almost 2,000 years ago. Yep. They're uh, just going to dive right on in. We uh, don't have a a lot of new things are going to be found here in the opening uh, paragraph that we are waiting on here. It's basically a continuation, a reinforcement of the pictures and ideas that we've already looked at in our study here in Revelation. But uh, let's pick up in the 14th chapter of Revelation, Brent. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remain virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. And with that, John calls back to numerous images we've already spoken about. Whether we think of it in terms of the Olympic Games and the great competition, whether we think of it in terms of an, Olymp- uh, an apocalyptic showdown between the kingdoms in the heavens, We have a clear picture of the clash that is taking place. We have the dragon beast uh, tag team going up against the lamb and his followers. Having already addressed the slain lamb earlier and spoken about the great multitude of the 144,000, John has set the stage for this epic confrontation. On one side will be the intimidating beast and his followers, all wearing his mark. And on the other side, the slain lamb and his followers who are wearing his name on their foreheads. Once we are unable to see the book of Revelation in its context, the juxtaposition is almost impossible to miss. When John references the sound from heaven, like the roar of what, Brent, can you remember? What was it like? Rushing waters. A roar of rushing waters and loud peals of thunder. Not only does this pull material from the Tanakh, most likely uh, source probably being Isaiah, I'm thinking here, but he also ties it contextually into culture. We already talked about which city was it that had the roar of rushing waters, Brent. Some god, his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. We posted pictures about this place. It had a wonderful hallway acoustically built to... Uh, Asclepius. Yes, which was in which city? Pergamum. Pergamum, absolutely. So back in the Pergamum discussion, a few episodes back, handful of episodes back, uh, we spoke about Asclepius in the hospital known as the Asclepion. And in the center of the Asclepion is a running spring that we talked about there in those pictures, still flowing to this day. And the sound of rushing water is connected to that healing and restorative voice of Asclepius. Could the reference to harps be a nod toward the people of God heading into captivity, throwing their harps into the trees in mourning? Uh, you might remember back in the Old Testament. Uh, We threw our harps up into the trees. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept. We threw our harps into the trees because there's no reason to sing. And so here, all of a sudden, you see a multitude playing harps. Is it possibly a callback to, uh, we have now found reason to pull the harps back out of the trees? Who knows? But Brent, go ahead and read us some more. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, 
Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. You can feel the anticipation for this great showdown building as you listen to the angels flying around the scene. If one were to think of this scene visually, they would feel like this contest is staggeringly weighted. This seven-headed beast that rises out of the sea and takes his stand on the beach is up against a slain lamb and a bunch of virgin followers. It would seem like this is going to be a massacre. But the angels give way to a different story. Singing about the glory of the creator judge and the fall of the great beast, they seem to be celebrating a bit early, don't they? But maybe this is the point. Maybe the end of this story is inevitable and we can already celebrate. Give us some more, Brent. I do have one question before we move on. Excellent. So that that little passage that I just read, or that piece, uh, it has that uh, group to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And this set of four words shows up multiple times in Revelation, and I think in different orders many times. And I'm just wondering if there's any like special insight to that. Yeah, I can remember spending time on that um, because you're absolutely right. And it feels too uh, coincidental to be, uh, I said that backwards. It feels too intentional to me to be a coincidence. The fact that it appears, I believe four different times, each time in a completely different order, never repeating itself. That feels odd to me. And I feel like there's probably something going on there. I don't have a good answer at this point, but it's a wonderful textual grab. Um, I, I would assume there needs to be some things going on there. So, yes, I'm just going to say yes, but I don't know. Moving on then. All right. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Yeah, and and when I hear all this about worshiping the beast and the image and this idea of perseverance and endurance, what biblical image comes to mind, Brent, or book, shall we say? Daniel. Daniel, who was called to worship the image but refused to, and he was, the book is all about perseverance. Like, that's kind of its theme. So now John calls the readers to stay committed to patient endurance, in his words. This road will not be an easy one to walk, but its destination is certain and sure. John reminds them that we know how this story ends. It's a story that has been written for a very long time. And to make that point stick, John uses imagery that once again has been pulled straight from what, Brent? From culture. From and culture text. and text. Absolutely. So by suggesting that the beast and his followers will be drinking the cup of wrath, filled with God's fury, John pulls his readers back to passages like Jeremiah 25, Psalm 69, Psalm 79, and we could obviously say lots of others. But this will not feel like uh, victory celebrations galore. The walking of this path will be a journey filled with toil, with tribulation, with strife, even with death. Go ahead and give us the next few verses here. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. Yes, this first century resistance will often lead to death. 
As we saw earlier in the book of Revelation, John is not afraid to deal with this very stark reality of what faithfulness looks like in the face of this beast. But John insists that deeds and their faithfulness will have eternal ripples. And indeed they do. I have sat, and Brent, you have done this as well, I have sat in the shaded ruins of Ephesus and read the words of Revelation to myself and to others. I have heard them read to me, and the ripples of those who gave their lives still impact my heart today. May we believe the deeds we engage in today matter as well and ripple throughout eternity. So John's going to keep going. He's going to continue to to draw off this very rich and deliberate apocalyptic imagery from the prophets of the Hebrew scriptures. Do we have a sense of how many people actually died? Like what percentage of the population went through this? No, and there's a huge debate about just how bad these persecutions were and which historians are exaggerating and what's a realistic number. And and some people argue that Domitian hardly even had a persecution. I think that's ridiculous. I'm of the school and the persuasion looking at church historians that Domitian's persecution was one of the worst in all of church history in the Roman Empire. Um, so every academics, we always love to find, I don't know why I just made a we pronoun there, but academics love to argue about every little nuance and detail. So the answer to that is no. It would be different for every uh, every Caesar, though. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, there, yeah, there are some Caesars that ran on all. It's just like today. So we have presidents that come and go, and they ran on they run on different platforms and different campaigns. Some of them, you know, run on campaigns of uh, of embracing diversity, and some ran run on campaigns of of fear against the other. And the same was true for Rome. You'd have a Caesar that blamed Christians for everything and scapegoated them for the fall of the Roman economy. And then you had Caesars that would say, oh, no, we're going to we're going to make Rome a place where all people can can serve Caesar and and, and the world that we're creating and uh, up and down and up and down. And you'd have all kinds of different dynasties that would do things differently. And that is part of the question of Revelation. Like, when was it written? Who was reigning at the time? Absolutely. What were they like? Yes. What's their immediate context? What's the, you know, 20 years ago that everyone still remembers context like there's a lot of and i'm sure i will have gotten a bunch of emails by now but the idea that near it's just written during the time of nero is just like super popular uh nero's persecution was not that widespread <laughs> here i am engaging in which persecution was the worst <laughs> exactly what everybody else does but uh, there are details in revelation that are absolutely key to domitian's reign at least that late or later so uh, Nero's just not an option for me at all. And I know I'll get those emails and I know people will be telling me all about why it's Nero and that's cool, but I have looked at the details and I am persuaded. Okay. There Sounds go. good. Well then without further ado, I will, I will let us move on. Revelation 14. I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. So John continues to build on this picture that we introduced uh, just in this, you know, early, earlier in our conversation today. More and more angels are getting into the mix. And now the angel that John sees is described in language that deliberately makes us think about the book of Daniel. Brent already called it. As John speaks of judgment, he calls back to the apocalyptic story that speaks of one coming with books and rendering judgment on the injustice of the world. 
Also, the same period of apocalyptic history and apocalyptic imagery depicts a, a harvest. That's very typical of apocalyptic literature. This is true in extra-biblical writing, as well as the teachings of Jesus. In other words, John is trying to give the people hope by speaking undeniably about a metaphorical and maybe literal day they often think of when they long for justice in a world of oppression. Give us some more, Brent. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he, too, had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. All right, so while he's using the image of the grain harvest, the first sickle referenced in the Greek, back in verses 14 and 16, is a larger sickle used for wheat or barley, that first sickle. John transitions into another image the prophets often use to speak of God's judgment, the grape harvest. The Greek word used here references a smaller sickle used for grapes. Outside of the direct prophetic passages in Tanakh that speak of God treading the grapes and the nations under his feet, one might also think of uh, the picture of Isaiah 5 that we've looked at all the way back in session 2, where God comes expecting a harvest of what, Brent? Of good fruit. Of good fruit, also uh, pictured as Zadeka. Yes, righteousness. Which is righteousness, but instead he finds... Bad fruit. Bad fruit, and the Zadeka cries of... Distress. Distress, yes. Absolutely. That cry. So these images don't evoke terror for the readers. They evoke hope. Like how many of us read this stuff and we're like, oh man, judgment is coming. For the, orig- the, for the readers that know their Bible, they're not hearing this and thinking terror and oh no. They're thinking, oh yes, this is what God always promised. The people of God long for the day when justice would be served and their patient faithfulness would be rewarded with restoration of God's created order. The 1600 stadia, that's a measure of distance, it sounds like. Is that number or is that measurement, like, does that mean anything to them? Seems like it would. Like, is that, are they going to know like, oh yeah, 1600 stadia, obviously this spot or whatever, where something happened or. Right. I would want to make sure and double check this in the Greek, but it's, it's hearkening back to the, um, to images like Ezekiel and apocalyptic literature. Um, it's hearkening back to uh, the temple, which is the, the temple of the new heavens and the new earth. And Ezekiel is measured. Um, I believe the Greek word they're going to use there is in stadia. Um, so, so you're hearing all of these references back. And again, numbers mean things. Not that I have all the wonderful math and insight here on 1600 stadia and what that is. But, but yes, it's definitely a measurement that calls me back to Old Testament text for sure. Let's uh, head on to Revelation 15, Brent. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass. Yeah, obviously completed with seven. Yep. Uh, Sorry, I had to stop and think about that for a second. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb, 
Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Okay, so John mentions that this wrath is a restorative justice to put things back in place. It's a purifying fire, leaving that which ought to remain. It is not a fire of destruction that destroys everything in its path. This wrath has an end, and upon its completion there are songs of victory. The reader will notice that God's people stand and sing the song of deliverance, the song of Moses, as they celebrate the rescue of God and the triumph of the Lamb. Give us some more, Brent. After this, I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. But while there was an end to this wrath, it has not found its end yet for the hearers of Revelation. For all the earth has not been made right, and this purification, uh, when I say that, try to think of apocalyptic pictures and less literally, if you can, hopefully. This purification does not come without groaning and strife. These bowls are full of plagues, and even though the images here are pulled from other literature and meant to be used as pictures, the readers have experienced many of these atrocities firsthand. As God has said before, he causes it to rain on the righteous and, what, Brent? And the unrighteous. And the unrighteous alike. And so with that, the next chapter leads us into a description of the terrible thing. That was a short little chapter of Revelation, wasn't it? It was pretty quick. It's a short little chapter of 15. So let's, let's grab another one. Uh, the next chapter is going to lead us into a description of the terrible things experienced by folks all over the ancient world. We're going to head into chapter 16 that uh, we're going to look at a bleak picture that gets drawn for us here for the people of Revelation to endure. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. All right, I have heard discussion about the cultural possibilities of these festering sores, but I have never found a description I feel completely sold on from a historical perspective. Not that they aren't out there, like from culture. I can't say this would be a great opening description for somebody who knew their text. Such a reference would take us back where, Brent? Mm, great question. Exodus? Yeah, absolutely. The Exodus. It's plagues, the sores and the pestilence that fell on the people there. As we've seen, uh, we've seen this before in Revelation. John pulling on Exodus imagery. And the Jewish reader might think of things like uh, Deuteronomy 28, maybe, where God warns his people of boils and sores for disobedience. See, I knew it had to be more than Exodus. Yeah, there's some good options there, but I'm glad you thought of that. Look at you, growing in your knowledge of the text. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Give us the second angel, Brent. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. All right, we see another reference to, a blatant reference, in my opinion, calling the reader back to the deliverance of Exodus, the water turning to blood. How about the third angel, Brent? Blood like that of a dead person. What yeah. a strange distinction. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's actually a good point. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. 
The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were. For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. We've continued images of judgment and references to the Tanakh. Most study Bibles will even notice this reference and call us back to places like Isaiah 49. Your study Bible might have a reference to Isaiah 49. There's a whole bunch of other possibilities that you could dig into and wrestle with. Uh, give us the fourth angel, Brent. Tell you what, listeners have a whole lot of text to go back and ingest from sure this do. episode. <laughs> 65 books worth. This one ought to, ought to keep everyone busy. <laughs> the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. Right, so as I pointed out previously, these images are deeply rooted in Hebrew scriptures, in the text. Uh, to to the deliverance of God's people. Like these aren't just he's not just pulling random scriptures from the Bible. That would be that would be impressive enough. He's pulling passages from the scripture that talk directly about deliverance. They do not evoke horror or terror to the reader. For many of us, we read Revelation and we see the horrendous judgment of God. But for the first readers of this letter, they saw the promised deliverance of the faithful. Brent, give us angel number five. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. True to form, John continues to use consistent imagery from the plagues of Exodus and the promises of Isaiah, and in this particular case, I believe Isaiah chapter 8, by the way. As we've seen before, each of these references could teach even larger sermons by looking at the context of the reference. For example, when you see the reference to Isaiah 8, you would pay attention and notice that it comes uh, at the close of a section about Assyria's oppression and God's deliverance. So if this is Isaiah talking about God's people being delivered from empire, and you knew your text, you would then hear this message and go, oh, John is hinting at the fact that God's deliverance is at hand. Simply reading the passage uh, of, of reference adds layers to the revelation, uh, to what revelation is teaching us uh, we never really knew was there. All right, sixth angel. Let's see what uh, the sixth angel has for us. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Har Megiddo. And I don't mean the 1998 movie with Bruce Willis. That is right. Don't mean that. It's what we call a global killer. The end of mankind. Half the world being incinerated by the heat blast. And the rest will freeze to death in nuclear winter. Basically the worst parts of the Bible. And that's not just a weird name about, you know, end times apocalyptic stuff. Harmageddon. Har Megiddo speaks of the mountain and valley of Megiddo. <laughs> it's not a crazy end times place. It's actually a place that we take people to, take students on some of our trips and, and those kind of things. And we'll see here in this passage more references to the Exodus. 
Um, by the way, when when I see these references, it feels like in some ways they're going backwards. Not not to a f- like not not in a perfect linear fashion because we did have blood earlier. So if it was truly going backwards, blood would come after frogs because it went blood and then frogs. But in a lot of ways, you see some of these Exodus images images going going kind of backwards as John. Which, if you know, spoiler alert, how Revelation's going to end. Like, we're going back. Like, we're we're taking the story backwards towards where, Brent? To Eden. To the garden, to Eden, right? So, so it kind of makes sense. And I don't know how much to make out of that. Like I said, it's not in perfect order, so I could say that with a whole load of confidence. Um, but there definitely, there's definitely something going on there, this backwards movement back back to the garden. We're coming back to the garden. Well, and we talked about in our plagues episode that there were potentially a couple of different ways of looking at the plagues maybe two different sets that were fused together so yes. i don't know and there's a whole sets of seven like the the scholars that think about that the scholars who think there are two different stories merged together the the main theories are that there's two stories of seven merged together into a story of 10 plagues so it would make a whole lot of sense here that we would have seven bowls of wrath for lots of reasons uh, obviously it, fits John's apocalyptic imagery, but it also fits the story of the Exodus possibly very well. So so John references uh, the great Armageddon, but what many readers don't know is that this reference does not speak toward a futuristic battle, but rather backwards to battles long past. Armageddon is a reference to Har-Megiddon, or Mountain of Megiddo in the Hebrew. The city of Megiddo is one of the fortress cities towards the northern part of the Via Maris, the great highway through the land of Israel. Battle after battle was fought in the Jezreel Valley, just outside the mountain of Megiddo. It becomes the perfect backdrop for John's grand apocalyptic vision. All right, give us the seventh angel, uh, Brent. Uh, Yeah, I'm not John. Yep. (laughs) Nice. Well, actually. Give it to us, John, through Brent. Yes, yes, yes. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne, saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell on people. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. And here, as well as with the quote uh, about coming like a thief, we see references that were made earlier when we studied the letter to what city fell apart in the thirds? The great quake. One of them. Sure was one of them. (laughs) One of the seven. Yes. Uh, It had uh, a great Acropolis that also had a twin. Necropolis. Thyatira. No. no. Hang on. It'll come to me. Sardis. Sardis. I almost said We have Smyrna. a winner. Uh, <laughs> so we could go back. If you wanted to ever go back and listen to that episode, you could hear. It sounds like Brent's going to go back and listen to that episode, brush up on some details there. I, I remember the stories. I just can't keep any of the names straight. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we've now spent a handful of chapters talking about many ways that John has set up the great battle, this great competition, the great games of light and darkness. Having just referenced the mountain of Megiddo, the stage is set well for us to begin to move towards the culmination of this battle. This image is where we will turn our attention to next in the next episode.
talk about a case for uh, going to Turkey, though. Ooh, it's a good one. It's a good case. Like, Sardis, I can see so clearly in my mind. I don't remember the name of it. <laughs> but, like, the gymnasium and the yes. Acropolis and the Acropolis, like, it is all so clear in my mind because I've actually been there and walked around and, like, yep. I advocate for it. Sign up. Absolutely. Go to the news page, sign up for the Bama Messenger, and we will email you when the next turkey trip is happening. You got it. All right. Sounds good. Uh, go to BamaDiscipleship.com uh, to contact us or do any of the other things you need to do with the podcast. So thanks for joining us this week. We'll be back again soon with more Revelation. Revelation.